Hi, I'm Karen Kennerly. I'm the director of Penn. And um, I'm in introducing tonight's evening uh, simply because Susan Sontag cannot be here. She, in fact, had to go to Sarajevo, which is where she is right now. Um, this is the series, the writer, the work, is, uh, was conceived of and designed and hosted by Susan. And because of that, I would like to read her own language, um, th that her own description of Mr. Sebold, uh, which she wrote for the invitation that some of the pen members got. So by way of introduction, although W.G. Sebold's The Immigrant seems unclassifiable at once fiction and autobiography and historical chronicle, there can be no doubt that its author is to be classed among the greatest contemporary writers in any language. A book of excruciating sobriety and warmth and a magical concreteness of observation, The Emigrants relates the narrator's quest for the truth about four lives, four people who left Germany at different times in this century. Born in Germany in 1944, Sebald has lived in England since his early 20s. His appearance at Penn is part of a brief trip to the United States, his first since New Directions published The Emigrants last year. Um, James Wood is a literary critic and senior editor at the New Republic, and um, just about the only person whom Susan wanted to <laughs> converse with Mr. Zabold uh, in her absence. Uh, so with that, I'll turn over to you, James. Oh, I'm sorry, before that, I always forget the practical things. We do have books for sale, and they're less expensive than in the stores. The hard covers are $20, and the paperbacks are 10 And um, uh, that's, okay, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, good evening. Um, Walter Benjamin said that all great works uh, found a new genre or dissolve an old one. And The Emigrants is such a book. And I've no doubt that we're tonight in the presence of a great writer, somebody who has invented an unrepeatable and curiously isolate masterpiece. Many of you have read it, but for those who have not, I'll offer a, a, a very quick praise. The book tells the story of four men, all swept by history and internally menaced. The first, Dr. Henry Selwyn, is discovered by Siebold in 1970 in a country house near Norwich in England. He seems to be an aristocratic hermit. He has abandoned his large house and lives largely in a stone folly, a turret he has built in his garden. His relations with plants and animals are stronger than his relations with humans. Slowly his story emerges. He left Lithuania in 1899 and his family got off in London thinking it was New York. Selwyn changed his name, married, went to Cambridge, traveled, and became a rural doctor. Dr. Selwyn, sometime after Sebald met him and told him his history, shot himself dead. The second story concerns Paul Berater, who taught Sebald when the author was a child. Sebald hears in 1984 that Berater committed suicide by lying on the local railroad tracks and begins to ask around about the source of his misery. He discovers that Paul Berater was a quarter Jewish, that, he's, that he was consequently banned from teaching at a time in the mid-30s when he was just beginning, that he served in the German army, that he resumed teaching, 
But like all of Sebald's subjects, except his last, Paul Bearater's soul began to fall victim to a wasting disease, an inner dwindling. He retired from teaching, his eyesight failed, and he killed himself. The third story is about Sebald's great uncle, Adelvart, who came to America in the 1920s, worked as a servant for a family called the Solomons on Long Island, but um, ended up in a mental asylum in Ithaca, where he died. The fourth story is about a painter named Max Ferber, whom Sebald met in Manchester. Um, that's the book. Much has been said, rightly, about the extraordinary originality of the book, and we may find frail precursors, it seems to me at least, and you will have your own uh, suggestions for this, um, possibly in Stondahl's autobiography, The Life of Henri Brulard, which is uh, a sort of unstable book, uh, which, as this book is adorned with photographs, um, Stondahl's book is adorned with his own unreliable drawings. Um, we might see it as some precursors in the 19th century German tradition of, of tales, um, narrators meeting people um, who then recount uh, their life histories, and I'm thinking particularly of, a, of an Austrian writer who has, uh, Sebald has written about, uh, called Stifter. And, and in the more contemporary vein, I think an obvious precursor is, is Nabokov. Um, speak memory, his autobiography has photographs in it, though they're captioned and reliable. Um, but his first novel written in English, The Real Life of Sebastian Knight, is a fictionalized account made to look real of the life of a writer. I just want to say one last thing before we go on to, to questions about the fastidiousness of this book. All those who read it note the patterning of certain motifs such as gardens and gardening or the appearance of Nabokov, direct or indirect, in each tale. But the book is a great one, I think, because it forces the largest abstract questions on us while never neglecting our hunger for the ordinary. And it's full of this extraordinarily careful detail, which I think is part of what makes it also a funny book. Um, very few people have actually mentioned the comedy, but it seems to me that the book does have comedy in it, and that slight tincture of vulgarity, of the sensational, which great books need if they're not to be ethereal. I think of Dr. Selwyn inviting people to dinner and giving them only vegetables from his own garden, or Elaine, his servant, bringing food in on a portable hot plate, which Sebald describes as some kind of patented design dating from the 30s. And note the word patented there, because I think a less careful writer would have just missed that word out, but that word, with its ridiculous presumption, is what makes the sentence funny. Or Mrs. Earlham in the last story with her English contraption, the tea's made, which makes tea for you in the mornings. Um, the photographs, some of which may not refer to the subjects of Sybald's tales, tease us as Goethe meant to tease us when he said this to Eckerman in 1827. What else is a novel but an unheard-of event which has actually happened? The book's constant sense of bringing into permanent visibility something which has happened and which has disappeared, its profound meditation on the fictionality of memory and its deep comedy all unite for me in a passage near the beginning of the story about Ambrose Adelbart. Sebold goes to visit his uncle Casimir on the Jersey beach to find out about his great uncle. And his uncle looks at the ocean and says, I often come out here, said Uncle Casimir. 
It makes me feel that I'm a long way away, though I never quite know from where. Then he took a camera out of his large check jacket and took this picture, a print of which he sent me two years later, probably when he had finally shot the whole film, together with his gold pocket watch. The comedy is subtle. The photo, which is this photo, is too dark to decipher. You look at it, and you try to see Sebald in it, and you cannot. It may or may not be the author. And it hardly matters. The suggestion is ripe enough. The sense of time slowed and mastered and lost is given in the mention of the pocket watch. And that detail, two years later, probably when he had finally shot the whole film, tells us about a life without much strong sense of self-visibility. This is not a life with photographs. And neither does Sebald have much sense of self-visibility. And yet the master of his book is that he prompts so much into visibility, so delicately and so beautifully. I'm going to hand you now to W.G. Sebald, and I shall ask him questions for a while, and then uh, hand him over to you, uh, and open questions up to the floor. And then I think he may read for about five minutes a couple of passages from the book at the end. Please welcome W.G. Sebald. Um, Does this work? Yes. Um, can I just start by asking you about this question of, of, of precursors? Um, I'm as much in the dark as, as, as anybody here because the book's originality um, makes uh, the, the business of searching for tracks uh, pointless a little um, and difficult. But I did want to ask you about how you, how the form, with its, uh, particularly with the photographs and this uh, imbrication of the fictional and the factual, uh, came about. <coughs> it had to do, I mean, the, the inclusion of pictures in the text had to do with the process of writing, which began to develop quite late in, in, in my career, as uh, you may know, I was just an ordinary academic until not all that long ago. And I gradually drifted into uh, creative writing, as one generally calls it, in my mid-40s, out of a sense of frustration with uh, my academic profession, I imagine, and simply because I wanted to find an escape route out of it and something that I could do in the potting shed that no one would know about. And. Um, the uh, first book that I did, the first prose work, that is to say, uh, is a, a text which is composed also of four discrete pieces, which is called Schwindelgefühle or Vertigo, but uh, could also mean Léger de Main. And it has in it, uh, I'm, it has in it, um, can you? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it has in it uh, a chapter, uh, I think it's the first chapter, if I remember correctly, precisely about Stendhal, mm. and uh, includes some of those drawings from La Vie de Henri Brulard that you have mentioned. Mm. 
And the process of writing as I drifted into it was in very many instances occasioned by pictures that happened to come my way and that I stared at for long periods of time and uh, that seemed to contain some enigmatic elements that I wanted to tease out. And so they did form, as it were, the instigation for uh, trying to write this kind of thing. And uh, because of that, they have kept their place. It uh, eventually became some sort of habit of including these pictures. And I think they do tell their own story within the prose narrative and do establish a second level of discourse that mm. is mute. And uh, it would be an ambition of mine to produce the kind of prose which has a degree of mutedness about it. Mm. And the photographs do, in a sense, help you along this route. Um, a, a banal but, but uh, unavoidable question would be uh, just to get it out of the way, in a sense. Um, to ask you roughly what proportion of those photographs do refer to their subjects? Well, I, this question came up yesterday evening when I did the reading at the uh, Goethe Institute, and it is one that I'm asked quite frequently. A very large percentage of those photographs are what you would describe as authentic, i.e. they really come out of the uh, photo albums of the people described in those texts and are direct testimony of mm. the fact that these people did exist in that particular shape and form. And uh, a small number, I imagine it must be in the region of 10%, are uh, pictures, photographs, old postcards, uh, travel documents, that kind of thing which uh, I had used from other sources. Mm. So they are, uh, in a sense, uh, I think to a very large extent, documentary. Shall we just shift this to and fro then? Okay. Yeah. Um, l let me ask you, um, just by way of, of, of concentrating on, on one story and giving a sense of, of how you uh, manipulated, uh, discovered, manipulated, and crafted the material. Perhaps I could just ask you uh, very loosely about, say, the first story, Dr. Henry Selwyn, how that came to you, um, how you elicited information, and then the, the process of, of shaping it, if, if uh, I'm not being too intrusive. The uh, Henry Selwyn story is the first one in the book, and it's the shortest one. That is an indication, I think, of the fact that it was very difficult for me afterwards, after this man had taken his life, to go back to the family and uh, ask probing questions. It was also difficult because uh, Henry Selwyn and his wife led very largely separate lives, and hence it would have been extremely uh, difficult to go back to her and sound her out about 
the uh, motives that might have led her estranged husband to do what he did. And so the uh, information which is offered in the story is actually very sparse in this particular case and is no more than I actually obtained from him during the time when he was still alive. I would probably have been unable to decipher the truth behind uh, his decision to take his life if uh, he had not, at a very late stage in that life, uh, volunteered, as it were, in a very short conversation that we had after we moved out of his house to tell me about his childhood and uh, in Lithuania and his emigration to uh, England. And it was only because I had this fragmentary piece of information that I could reconstruct from there with very large gaps in between what uh, hypo presumably uh, this particular trajectory was all about. But uh, as the story is described with all its gaps and elisions, uh, it is very much like I experienced it. Uh, in some senses, of course, the fragmentariness uh, of the information is useful to you fictionally because uh, one of the uncanninesses of the book is that um, while at one level there are obvious reasons for this uh, kind of despair and, and, and inner dwindling that I, I spoke about, um, at another uh, there's something curiously mysterious about uh, what exactly um, prompts this? Well, I mean, the, the, the four people whose, whose lives are described in those texts are people who, as it were, uh, escaped the direct impact of, of persecution and who would one would count amongst those uh, who Primo Levi count i salvati, as opposed to i sommersi. And uh, what particularly interested me as I began to think about these lives was the, uh, the time delay between a vicariously experienced catastrophe and the point at which it overtook these people very late in life, i.e. the phenomenon of old age suicide and the way in which these kinds of drastic decisions are triggered by things that lie way back in time. And uh, the mentality of people who are approaching old age, and I think this is something that most people do experience, the fact that, you know, the older you get, the more the passage of time between your present age and your childhood or youth begins to, to, to shrink somehow. And you see things that are very distant with extreme clarity, very uh, highly exposed, as it were, whereas things that happened two or three months ago some, somehow vanish. And it's this uh, recreation of the past 
in the minds of those people. And that was something that interested me beyond, as it were, the immediate cause that led them to take their lives. Uh, and of course, what this recreation, as your book constantly suggests, um, is one that's is the activity of memory, but uh, is also uh, like the business of, of making fiction. Um, it's imaginative, it's open to um, strange appropriations and, and uh, errors and so on. Um, your, your, your Dr. Selwyn says something which, which is touched on again and again in the book uh, when he um, uh, remembers saying farewell to the uh, Bernese uh, Alpine guide and says, but I may just be imagining it. Um, and obviously the, f the photographs, I mean, this is an effect um, that seems to me uh, implicit in the particular fictional form of the, of, the, of, the, of the narrated tale anyway, of somebody saying, in 1970 I drove out to meet so-and-so and this is the story of his life. Would I be right about that? Sorry, I, I didn't quite catch you. Oh, sorry. I, I meant simply that uh, in itself, this, this particular fictional form, even without the photographs, is likely to raise uh, this question of what is, uh, uh, what is imagined and what is recalled. Um, for instance, uh, uh, the example I, uh, I have is um, when you describe, or rather Paul Beretta's friend is describing the loss of his eyesight, um, you say that uh, the world um, began to seem mouse-gray, his world. And you say, he contemplated the mouse-gray world, open parenthesis, his word before him. And obviously, as you're reading that, you think, now, it seems 50-50, whether it's his word or, or your word, and I'm, I'm not interested in whose word it is. but. Uh, something about this fictional form um, automatically raises that question, I think. Well, I think uh, any, form, any form of fiction really does that to a, to a certain extent. Uh, it leaves you always unclear as to how much was invented, how much refers in a text to real people, real incidents in time. I mean, a classic, uh, I think, uh, case of this is are of course the novels of Thomas Mann, you know, which outraged all those who thought, you know, they had been portrayed in them unkindly. And uh, to a, a certain extent I, I think this is always there. But what I what I'm trying, I think, fairly consciously beyond that is to precisely point up that sense of uncertainty between fact and fiction. Because I do think that you know we largely delude ourselves with the knowledge that we think we possess, that we make it up as we go along, that we make it fit our desires and anxieties, and that we invent a straight line of a tale in order to calm ourselves down. And so this whole process of narrating something which has a kind of, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, well, a, a reassuring sort of quality to it, 
is called into question. And uh, that uncertainty which the narrator has about his own trade uh, is then, as I hope, you know, imparted to the reader who will or ought to, I think, feel a similar sense of irritation about these matters. And uh, I think that fiction writing, which does not acknowledge the uncertainty of the narrator himself, is a form of imposture, which uh, I find very, very difficult to take. I, any form of authorial writing where the narrator sets himself up as stagehand and director and uh, judge and executor uh, in a text, I find somehow unacceptable. And I, I cannot bear to read books of this kind. Just to stay on this for a second, that's always been something you, that's been a personal preference of yours, has it? Or, uh, so that hasn't anything to do with um, sort of uh, contemporary notions that some, that this sort of omniscience, uh, um, a Jane Austen-esque kind of um, omniscience is uh, uh, not possible for whatever reason in our sort of secularized uh, world or so. I mean, I, I suppose I'm asking you, that's not a, a theoretical abstraction that you feel it's just a sort of, it's an unpleasantness about this kind of narration. It is, it is an unpleasantness and I suppose in a sense it's a question of manners. And if you, if you refer to Jane Austen, you refer to a world where there were set standards of propriety which were accepted by, by everyone. And given that you have a world where the rules are clear and where one knows when trespassing begins, then I think it is legitimate within that kind of context to be a narrator who knows what the rules are and who knows the answers to certain questions. But I think these certainties have been taken from us by the course of history and that we do have to acknowledge our own sense of, of ignorance and of insufficiency in these matters. And therefore, you know, uh, uh, write, try and write accordingly. I mean, it is for, I mean, you, you, what you say is, I think, quite correct. It gives me an unpleasant feeling to read this kind of book. And I much rather uh, read I mean, autobiographical texts, um, Chateaubriand or uh, Stendhal, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I much prefer La, La Vie de Henri Brûlard to Lucien Leuven, for instance, because I, I, I find that there is a degree of, of realness in it with which I can calculate. Whereas uh, uh, Chartreuse de Parme, for instance, I, I find, you know, is his subjected to the rules and laws of fiction to a degree which I, I, I find tedious. Now this is a question obviously which, which your photographs uh, force and exaggerate um, because they ask uh, us to reflect on what's imagined and recalled. But I think also an, uh, an, an extra pathos, which I, I, I know many readers uh, have felt, um, 
about these photographs is that um, is that they they refer not only to something that has uh, happened and that is past archival um, and in the albums, um, but that all photographs uh, refer to what is just about to happen um, after the frame ends, and therefore they all gesture ahead in some way. Uh, and I think that that's moving because, and I want to ask you about this, whether there is some connection between that and something inherent in nostalgia, which is also looking both ways, backwards and forwards, or something, as it were, utopian about nostalgia, an escape as well as a sentence. <coughs> well, photographs are, in a sense, the epitome of memory or some form of reified memory. And with what has always struck me, not so much about the kinds of photographs that people take now in large quantities, but about the older photographs, you know, at m taken at the time when, when people had their picture taken perhaps two or three times in a lifetime. And they have something curiously spectral about them. I mean, it seems as if the people who appear in these pictures are kind of fuzzy on the edges, very much like ghosts which you may encounter in any of those streets out there. And uh, it is that enigmatic quality which uh, attracts me to these pictures. And uh, it's less the sense of, of, of nostalgia, but that there is something utterly mysterious in, in old photographs, that they are designed almost or designed to be lost, you know, they, they vanish in, in, in an album which vanishes in an attic or in a box and if they come to light, they do so accidentally, somehow you stumble upon them. I mean, not long ago, I went through a junk shop in, in Norwich where they keep, you know, boxes of old postcards and photographs and uh, I found amongst all manner of pictures in there, a uh, uh, postcard of a Trachtengruppe or Jodlergruppe from my hometown. You know, all in full uh, leather hosen regalia and the women in dirndls and under it, it said, uh, you know, Trachtlergruppe Oberstdorf, 1912 or something like this. And it's extraordinary, you know, you wonder how a picture of this sort should end up somewhere in a provincial capital in the east of England. Has it been put there just so that I could find it at a later point? You know, it's that sort of, the way in which these stray pictures cross your paths that has something uh, at once, I think, totally coincidental and fateful about it. And then, of course, you begin to puzzle over them and. Uh, it's from that, I think, that much of uh, desire to, to write about them comes. I think also the, the, the peculiar poignancy of the photographs as they're arranged in this book um, is obviously that uh, documentation uh, is such a, uh, a fraught subject uh, as it relates to the Holocaust, um, so that 
there's a there's an the, 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 there's a, there's an extra pathos I think here if these photographs are telling us both that uh, um, the Germans desire to uh, the, Ger uh, the German desire to uh, silence and end uh, witness has been um, has been beaten. Um, it seems to me that on one hand you the book tells us that, or on the other, uh, more complicatedly, it also tells us um, not to look in these photographs for the life because it isn't fully there. It's opaque and mysterious. Yes, and uh, there are one or two instances, I think, in the text which uh, point to the unreliabli unreliability precisely of these sources. There is, I think, in the final tale, a photograph which depicts uh, the burning of books on the uh, Residenzplatz in Würzburg. And one of the characters in the story uh, says that this picture was a falsification is the great uh, pall of smoke that rises from the burning books was copied into the picture subsequently because they were unable to take a proper photograph in the evening when this burning of books did occur. So they chose a photograph, the fascist uh, newspaper uh, uh, journalists at that time, which showed any old assembly on the Residenzplatz and copied that uh, pall of smoke into it. So it seems like a document, but in fact it's a falsification and the character then says, you know, this is how it began with this kind of thing. And like this particular falsification, so everything was a falsification from the very start. And uh, that, of course, you know, pulls, as it were, the rug from under the narrator's business altogether. So that as a reader you might well ask, what is he on about? Why is he trying to make us believe that these pictures are real? And it is, I think, this kind of strategy of uh, making things seem uncertain in the minds of the reader, which um, the narrator pursues fairly deliberately. Can I just ask you, um sort of as a, uh, as a step down from, from the, the more abstract questions, just about the um, third story, uh, Great Uncle Adelbart, and um, just a little bit uh, along the lines of my question about Dr. Henry Selwyn, um, just to ask you about how much of that story you already knew, how much you had to find out, um, and how much uh, you had to uh, invent. In, in, in one sense, of course, this was the story that concerned me most immediately because it concerned my own family. And as the opening of this particular story says, uh, I came across this great uncle of mine when I was a small boy, only once, and he seemed to me even then, at any rate in retrospect, as quite an extraordinary character who didn't fit the family mold. And then, of course, as one does as a child, or as someone who grows up, one forgets about it altogether for years on end. And it was about 15 years ago when I came to this city to visit, uh, first of all, to give a paper in the 
Goethe Institute, as it happened, on Alfred Döblin. Uh, I took the occasion to go out to New, New Jersey and visit my relatives who live there. And I looked through, as is my, <laughs> my habit, through the old photograph albums that my aunt had. And there was this picture of this great uncle of mine in Arab costume, a photograph taken in Jerusalem in 1913. It was a photograph that I had never seen before and that somehow illuminated instantly for me who that man was and uh, how he came to be uh, uh, like he was. I did not know at that point about the way in which he had ended. But I knew that his psychological disposition from looking at that picture and the predilections that he had were such that his own family could not acknowledge them. And um, I took it from there and this was then the starting point for exploring this particular life further. I obviously asked my aunt to tell me as much as she knew about this particular life and I asked my uncle and all that is recorded in this story and then I also traveled to some of the places which figured in their accounts so I did go to Deauville for about a fortnight and rummage around there to see what I could find. I, I did not go to Jerusalem for the simple reason. I mean they, the, the, the great uncle and Cosmo Solomon, the young man who he looks after, traveled together in 1913 to Jerusalem via Constantinople. And if you go to present day Jerusalem, I imagine you will find precious few traces of what Jerusalem looked like in 1913. So if I had gone there in order to try and find uh, location material, as it were, for that part of the story, I would have le been led up the garden path. So what I worked from in this particular case were old travelogues going back to Chateaubriand's Itinerera Jerusalem, of which there are many quotes in this particular passage to uh, travelogues written by a German geologist called Falmerayer in the late 19th century to material of that kind. So the text is constituted, I think, uh, from material which comes from diverse discrepant sources which exist at various levels, by historical material, uh, material collected personally by the narrator and stories told the narrator by other people. Um, one, one of the things that must uh, strike readers of this book in English um, is the uh, exquisite care of the of the prose and of the translation. And by way of asking you a more general question about the translation, I wanted first of all to ask you a, um, a, a, an acute question, which was uh, something that struck me uh, uh, on r reading the book, um, is the, the tension, almost contradiction, between the 
elusiveness, mysteriousness, opacity of the material and the forceful, uh, almost fanatical extremism of the qualifying words, um, which reminded me, I, I don't know if he's been any influence on you, but reminded me of Thomas Bernhardt, um, so that uh, uh, almost, a, 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 yes, a kind of extremism of, of language going alongside this, uh, uh, this unlocatable, unlocatability. Um, Paul's whole manner at that time was extraordinarily composed. Uncle Adelvart had the greatest difficulty with everyday tasks. Fairbusses remembers seeing a ship in Manchester, uh, ships in Manchester, and remembers it as an utterly incomprehensible spectacle. The language is constantly doing that, uh, enforcing an absolute uh, uh, kind of extremism. Um, and this, as I say, goes alongside something unextreme. I wanted to ask you about that, and then a larger question about how you worked with the translator. Well, these uh, qualifying qualifying words that are introduced in, in almost every sentence are certainly a tribute to Thomas Bernhardt, who used what I would perhaps try to describe as periscopic writing, i.e. everything that he, the narrator, relates is mediated through sometimes one or two other stages, which makes for quite complicated syntactical labyrinthine structures. And uh, in one sense, exonerates the narrator, of course, because he never uh, pretends that he knows more than is actually possible. And uh, that uh, extremism that you refer to, I think, is, of course, also uh, present in, in, in Thomas Bernhardt to a much greater extent. I mean, he really indulges in hyperbole all along, you know. And um, I have tried to preserve, I think, some of this, because I do, uh, 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 Thomas Bernhardt did mean a great deal to me in more than one way. And uh, what that extremism seems to me to indicate is, of course, it's the things that do stick out in your mind. They're always superlatives. They're always exaggerations. This is what you don't forget. And uh, the telling of a tale is an exaggeration in itself. We all know that, you know, when we tell our stories at dinner parties, you know, and from one, you know, your, your wife can't bear to listen to that story anymore because every time you tell it, it becomes more extreme and it becomes more grotesque and more bizarre and funnier and or more boring as the case may be. But uh, it is inherent, I think, in the business of storytelling that drive towards, towards the extreme. And that, of course, invariably begs the question of what actually is the truth, because last time you told this story, it wasn't like that. It was much less extreme, much less funny. And that if you then get a good audience reception with, with a story that is untrue and there happens to be a witness present who knows it's untrue, that, of course, puts you into a, a position of extreme discomfort. And all of a sudden, you are no longer a storyteller, but you are an imposter. And uh, it's all that sort of thing, you know, which is at the heart of fiction writing, I think, quite generally. That is certainly there. And you try to atone for that, I imagine, you know, for that frivolity. 
in other ways, i.e. by trying to be as faithful as you possibly can in all areas where meticulousness is possible. And that tends to be very largely about objects rather than people, because you never really know what these people felt. But you can just possibly imagine what a mulberry tree might have meant to them, or a certain arrangement of another kind, or a certain interior. So it's, it's at that level that I think you, know, you try to, to make up for your lapses, as it were, of reliability that might otherwise be present. Do you want me to say something about this translation business? Well, um, I mean, there are many reasons uh, why German texts don't really get noticed in the Anglo-Saxon world. There is a natural gradient, I think, out of English, which is such a dominant language, into all other minor languages. And German certainly, you know, is rapidly beginning to acquire the status of a minor language together with Italian and French. I mean, we know that the French are acutely worried about, you know, the dwindling of the presence of French on the world stage and so on. So there's a natural gradient out of those languages. And uh, whilst the English had a very highly developed translation culture, I think in the 19th century, you know, when people like Coleridge and so on were uh, very closely liaised with the German culture, that has largely fallen by the wayside for uh, historical reasons, not least. You know, it was the preposterousness of the Second Empire, it was German fascism that, as it were, reinforced the insularity of the British. And in the post-war years, if it hadn't been for the emigres, I think nothing would have got translated. I mean, all the books that get, did get translated into English, Heinrich Böll, Günther Grass, the early Handke, were almost uh, all translated by one man, by Ralf Mannheim. And uh, there were very, very few other translators. And like every other culture, the translation culture needs a very wide basis, i.e. you need a lot of bad translators in order to get one good one. And uh, so it was extremely difficult to find anybody at all who would take on a text of this kind, because the text is, in its linguistic structure, uh, fairly elaborate and multi-layered. And uh, to try and get some of that across into English seemed to me, in the first place, something like an impossibility. Uh, when the uh, English publishers, I, I, I remember the day when the publishers in Frankfurt rang me up to say they had managed to sell uh, the foreign rights for an English translation, that I was filled with fear and trepidation at the prospect of what was in store, you know, because I could just imagine the tediousness of the whole process and that at the end I would be faced with a product which I would not recognize as anything to do with my own writing. And it really put me in a cleft stick because all my colleagues at the University of East Anglia knew that I had 
got where creative writing is pursued by, by many people in the School of English and American Studies, but I am in another school. And uh, so word got round, you know, that I was getting published in Germany and that I was getting good reviews and they kept asking me, what is it that you are doing, you know, what sort of stuff is it that you write? I said, well, I can't really say, you know, it's difficult to explain. And I constantly, you know, prevaricated and avoided. And uh, if you imagine the situation, then uh, the book gets finally published and it, it, it looks like some botched thing, you know, that has uh, somehow been put together, then you would appear in a very bad light. So I, I knew that uh, considerable care would have to be taken. And the only thing that I could think of in order to try and ensure some kind of reasonable passage of this text into that particular foreign language was to ask the publisher to commission five or six trial translations of several pages. When those ended up, uh, were brought by the postman one morning and I glanced at them, I wanted to go out and hang myself in the garden. We finally chose uh, Michael Hulse because we thought, you know, that there was somebody who showed the greatest promise, as it were. And he did indeed do, uh, you know, a very, very solid job. And I think what his achievement was, was that he got the overall tone pretty right. But there were endless minor lapses, um, involuntary repetitions, which I normally try to avoid and of which there are still several in the text and all that kind of kind of thing which required me to to go over the text at, at great length spending many hours uh, making incisions doing a considerable amount of invisible mending on on the whole thing and um, from there it went back to uh, the editor at Harvilles. And uh, this is, I think, where the main problem lies, because a publishing house like Harvilles in London have nobody who can read German with any degree of competence. So they commission a translation, it gets printed, and they can only work from the English texts. They don't see, you know, uh, where the faults may lie. And I think this is why a lot of awful translations do get published because there is a lack of competence often at that level in the publishing houses. Nor do these very hard pushed people, I mean publishing as, as one knows is a, a business which is only second to the fashion business, you know, for time pressure. Twice a year you have to bring out a new collection if you possibly can, you know, with all that goes with it. So there is no time to, you know, pore over these things and try to get them right. And uh, so what has evolved between Michael and me is a very complicated process of toing and throwing, of exchanging you know, uh, uh, information and um, annotated pages. And um, I don't know how long I can keep that up because it is gradually gnawing away at, at at my energies. I mean, I have to do that at night generally because there is no other time. And uh, it takes a great deal of effort, but I do think that, you know, it is something that has to be done. 
horror is the idea, you know, that these texts get published in, I don't know, Barcelona or Amsterdam or Copenhagen in versions which I cannot do anything about. And I had a, a small uh, indication of how dreadfully wrong these things can go when the first book, Schwindelgefühle, was taken on almost immediately by an Amsterdam publishing house. And they printed it what seemed in what seemed to be a very decent edition. And uh, on the aeroplane from Norwich, uh, from, from Amsterdam to Frankfurt, one day I picked up Volkskrant newspaper. And there was a whole page review of that particular book in its Dutch translation. And it was very complimentary and had nice pictures with it. So I was jolly pleased trying to decipher this Dutch text, you know, double Dutch as it was to me until I got to the last paragraph where it said, you know, that uh, it's a great shame that this wonderful book was not translated into Dutch, but murdered through Dutch or by Dutch. And it was a, an absolutely devastating three-liner which caused that particular publishing house, shall be nameless, who depend a great deal on translated literature to pulp that whole edition and to have it redone. But, you know, I mean, I, I, when, when the book was sent to me, which was well before I, I read this review, I, I read down some of these Dutch pages as best I could, and it seemed fine to me, because I don't know sufficient Dutch to be able to judge it. And I think a lot of crimes are committed in that way. And translation is something that is, in a different way, I think, as difficult as writing. And the publishers ought to allow translators uh, to do their job properly. It is frequently a, questions, a question of time and of payment. For uh, about three weeks ago, the Italian translator came to Norwich and uh, in order to ask me a few questions about it, about the Rings of Saturn, which he was just in the process of translating, and that's quite a, a long book, considerably longer than this one. And the Italian publishers, Pompiani, had said to the man, we want it in two months. And because he was a young translator who was just trying to earn his first, you know, accolades, he agreed to it. Fortunately, they gave him another month, but even three months is quite ridiculous because the poor man has to run to libraries and find out about this, that, and the other, and it's just impossible. And there is a lot of uh, mistakes made at that level. Just on a, on a, on a different tack, I wanted to ask you, um, and again, uh, unintrusively, um, but uh, a little bit about your relation to, your own relation to emigration and your home country. Well, th that, is, that is a quite a, a difficult chapter, of course. I mean, I, I came to live in England uh, by some kind of historical accident, I think. You know, I happened, I left uh, Germany when I was 21, 
for the simple reason that I found that it was impossible at Freiburg University, as it then was in the early 60s, to pursue what I was interested in. The univer university library was in an impractical state. The teachers you could never meet. It was generally an undesirable situation. So I thought you know, that one good way out of this would be to go to the French-speaking part of Switzerland, which wasn't too far away, and where the universities were very small and the German departments minute and you would be in seminars with two and a half other chaps and you could get at the books. I remember uh, my first visit to the uh, uh, Librairie Cantonale in Fribourg and there were um, chaps in, in grey coats behind the counter and you could say to them, fetch me the collected works of Immanuel Kant, and they would run off and bring them to you, and it was absolutely wonderful, you know, to have that kind of possibility. And uh, so that was purely, I think, uh, in order to be able to pursue what I was interested in, that I, I ended up in the French part of Switzerland. It had also the uh, other reason that my elder sister happened to live in that town and promised to, or said she would put me up for free for a year and as I had no money that was quite an important aspect also of my uh, departure from Germany and little did I know at the time of course that I would uh, never return to that country except for brief visits. I certainly didn't have that intention. That I ended up in the following year in Manchester, again, was rather a fluke in a sense. I had no idea, I, kn I knew hardly any English at the time, and I had no idea what England was like. I didn't know that it was divided into a green and a black part, and uh, I had absolutely no intimation of what sort of a city Manchester might be. And when I got out of the aeroplane there, I uh, really didn't uh, believe my eyes. I can only compare it to an experience which uh, an Arab once told me about, uh, whose native city was Mecca, and who was an Orthodox Muslim, and who had obtained a scholarship to read uh, medicine in Germany. And uh, his ticket was to Munich, and it happened to be September, which is when, as you know, the Oktoberfest happens. And one well-meaning and totally ignorant German who received him at the airport thought it might be a wonderful idea to take this foreigner to the Oktoberfest. And of course, to an Orthodox Muslim, this was just like hell. And he told me about how difficult it was for him to get over this experience. It took him a whole year. <laughs> and I think my arrival in Manchester, you know, cast me into similar turmoil. Uh, it took me not a whole year, but about three or four months because I had, until I had roughly found my bearings. But then, you know, within the first year even, I got to like the place very much because it contained all manner of things of which I had never dreamt and uh, I got accustomed to it quite quickly. Nevertheless I still had the idea of uh, leaving it as soon as I had 
taken my master's degree. And I then did go off to work in Switzerland for a year. But this was the German part of Switzerland, which is possibly, if that can be the case, more inclined towards fascism than Germany itself. And um, uh, I, I couldn't bear being there after a year. I, I had it, uh, it was quite impossible for me to stay, and so I returned to England. I made one or two other attempts at escaping from that island, the most recent one, only two weeks ago, and all of them found it. So, you know, I, I expect I, I'll be condemned to be buried there somehow. But uh, what your question is about, uh, I mean, in, in England, of course, I, I'm not at home. I, I mean, I consider myself as a, as a guest in, in that country. But what I appreciate very much is the absence, the almost total absence in that country of any authoritarian structures. And that was something that, you know, gradually dawned on me as I went along through the years. And in retrospect, I now also know that it was the presence of these either explicit or implied authoritarian structures in the German university system of the 1960s that made me want to leave it. And uh, it is something that one doesn't really understand very well now that uh, in the early 1960s, uh, the German departments in German universities were staffed at the senior level at any rate by people who had received their training in the 1930s, who had uh, done their doctorates in the 1930s, who had very frequently not just towed the line, but actively contributed through their writing to that culture of xenophobia, which had developed from the early years of the century in that country. And that, of course, they had been reconstructed in the post-war years, but that this past, which was theirs, was nevertheless present. And to this day, of course, there come to light cases which are so bizarre that you can scarcely credit them. It was about a year or two ago, I don't know whether it appeared in the press here, that it became public that one of the more important professors at the University of Aachen had invented for himself a totally new biography in the immediate post-war years, had gone to the length of writing a second doctorate so that, you know, he could, you know, as it were, prove that he was another person. And this was only, you know, two years ago that all, all this came out. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that all professors of German literature in the early 60s were unreconstructed uh, uh, supporters of that unfortunate movement. But Germanistic was a discipline which was very much involved in supporting that uh, ideology and which never really examined its part in it. And uh, I'm sure that somehow this did influence me. And certainly, I mean, this is again a question about the authenticity of, of, of retrospective, but in, in, in 
retrospection, it appears to me, you know, that this was one of the motives that led me to leave. I do feel, whenever I am in Germany, a curious mixture of um, wanting to belong and of knowing that I actually, not that I am an alien, but that I have become an alien over the years. And it's a very odd thing, you know, because uh, as you can hear through my English, probably, I haven't lost my home dialect, which is much more pronounced, of course, still when I speak German. So I have this very regional accent in German, which, of course, immediately is accepted as a sign of belonging. And in fact, I feel I do not or no longer belong. So that makes it all very difficult. And um, it depends where I am. But uh, it's fine to me to go to Frankfurt and do a reading in the Literaturhaus and then vanish again. But it is much more difficult for me to go back to my hometown and speak and talk to my school friends. You know, and that is the difficult part. And uh, in England, it's, um, as one knows, you know, people respect privacy scrupulously, i.e. you can leave your house in the morning in your underwear and nobody will bat an eyelid, you know. I mean, it is just, uh, that's what he does, you know. A friend of mine once broke an ankle on, on the beach at Holcomb. And there was nobody else there except an elderly English couple sitting in a car having a cup of tea. <laughs> and uh, he was desperately trying to catch their attention so that they could call an ambulance. <laughs> and uh, in order to do so, he kind of tried to make his way towards them, very much like a soldier in the battlefield. And they just looked at him quizzically and didn't say anything, you know. They, said they just thought this is how he goes for his walk, and that's <laughs> fine, you know, this is his business. I mean, sometimes it can become a bit extreme, but uh, generally I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a very pleasant country to live in. And I'm quite uh, glad that I'm being tolerated there. Let me um, open questions out to the, the audience now. Um, if people would just like to put up their hands, um, I'll pass the microphone back. Yeah, speak loudly. I, I'll tell you what, I'll repeat the, uh, the question, if I can hear it. Yes, it's not, 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 not an easy question, but uh, pathos is uh, uh, certainly, I think, uh, the wrong approach. What it seemed to me in the mid-1960s when I first read 
the prose pieces that Peter Weiss then published, that he had managed uh, to hit a tone which I would perhaps describe as dispassionate, which seemed to be the right one. And uh, that any form of overt melodramatic emotionality, which had informed so much of the immediate post-war fiction, was in a sense a lapse. So I did take my cue, I think, largely from writers like Peter Weiss in this respect, and also from writers like Wolfgang Hildesheimer, who in 1965 published a novel called Tünset, which has this uh, very detached way of uh, dealing with its subject. Uh, at the same time, of course, uh, one does realize as one writes that you do need certain melodramatic effects. And that seems to me one of the most difficult areas of writing altogether, is that you have to, as it were, almost indulge in this up to a point. And uh, I can only think of one example that I think we all know, and that is Anton Chekhov, who has an absolute or had an absolute knack of you know, producing, pushing melodrama just to the point where it is still tolerable, but not an inch beyond it. And I think that is very, very difficult to achieve. But without that, uh, you know, told tales lose a lot of their potential for impact. So it is, uh, I think, largely a question of, of, of tact as you go along with your tale to, to, to try and find out, you know, how far can you go with this. And uh, it is, yes, a tricky and difficult area. Yeah. Yes. <coughs> yes, he was one of the models. I mean, the uh, the transpositions in the other stories are quite straightforward. They are one to one, as it were. I e there was a person very much like Henry Selwyn. There certainly was a person like that schoolteacher Bereiter. But in the case of the last story, uh, I used two different foils, and one of them was the painter Frank Auerbach, who I knew about. Uh, as an American art critic published uh, a very uh, detailed tome about Auerbach's paintings and the way in which he works. And the other details in the story, especially the uh, childhood memoirs of uh, the character's mother are details which are, were given to me by my Mancunian landlord in Manchester, who is still alive. And uh, as I didn't want to and knew that it would be improper to draw him into the limelight in any sense, I tried to avoid doing so by introducing this second foil, as it were, as a distraction. And uh, that is how this particular arra arrangement came about.
No, no. Yes, it, it, it was a, you know, t titles are, are, are always difficult. I remember running up and down the corridors asking my more literary inclined colleagues how they would render this. The Ausgewanderten in German has uh, slightly archaic overturns. There is, as you may know, a short story by Johann Wolfgang Goethe called Gespräche Deutscher Ausgewanderten in this curiously archaic turn of phrase. It is also a passive formulation which uh, indicates that these people perhaps did not leave their country of their own free volition but were actually marched out of it. I mean this is certainly uh, present as an innuendo in the German title and it was very difficult to imagine how one could, would get that across in English. Emigres of course one associates something entirely different with that. Emigrants isn't right either. I think you, you, you are quite right in, 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 in saying so. Somebody suggested that it should have been called they went elsewhere, which I think you know, might be a solution. But it's not the sort of title that publishers can do anything with. So you have to you know, then make concessions and say, all right, this will have to do. And uh, you know, although it's not right, it's a sort of deliberate error. No, not really. I don't think I'm up to it, you know. And uh, I mean, it's it would pr if I, if I had gone to France in in the mid '60s, I think I would feel much safer about French now than I do about English. I felt quite safe about French even after one year, but English is such a prolix and impossibly complicated and ever evolving language. With uh, certainly in England with so many different social level levels of utterance that you never quite know where you are. And I, I don't think uh, I could do this successfully. And once you make a transition like this, it's almost forever. So it would be a very big step to take. As you know, Elias Canetti lived in England for many, many years, and he never wrote a line in English. Although he, I think in theory, it seemed, you know, that he would be well able to do so. And so there are, Peter Weiss, of course, tried to begin his writing career by writing in Swedish. And he made two or three flying attempts in that language. And every time, you know, he came down. And then he went and dug up, you know, the language which he had nearly forgotten. I mean, the uh, trivial explanation for it is that your first language has deeper roots. But I don't think really that that is it. It is simply a question of making a choice. And of course, as soon as Nabokov, for instance, had moved over into English, he didn't write in Russian anymore. He still translated, but he didn't write it as far as I know. Uh, he then you know, made the transition for good. And the only person who was in that sense operating properly in both languages was, as far as I can see, Samuel Beckett. And of course, you know, his kind of writing 
these minuscule, minuscule things that he wrote, they lent themselves to that, you know, being done in both languages. If he had written lengthy novels, I don't think he would have done it in two languages. I mean, it was fine engineering that he was into. And I think at that level, it's probably possible to deal always in two languages as he did. About? Yes, I think you're quite right in that. I mean, there is an explicit reference to Wittgenstein, if I remember correctly, in the Max Ferber story, uh, where there is even a photograph of the house in which Wittgenstein lived as a very young man when he came to Man Manchester as an engineering student. And, uh, of course, this was something that I didn't know when I came to Manchester and that I only gradually found out about this. But you know how it is when, you know, you consider your own life and you realize fortuitously, fortuitously somehow that your passage through this world somehow crossed somebody else's path. You know, it, it seems to give your own life added value or significance for some curious reason. You know, when I first read um, Elias Canetti's autobiography, the first volume, which begins with this wonderful description of his transplantation from Bulgaria to Manchester. And I learned that he had lived in the Palatine Road, where I had lived as well for some time. It meant something to me. I know, I knew even then that, you know, it couldn't possibly mean something in the real sense, but it still does somehow. And this is the case also with this Wittgenstein pattern, which is a very faint one in the book with scarcely noticeable resonances. And um, it was simply, I think, initially the fact that, you know, he had been in Manchester where I was at roughly the same age. And that also then when I thought back to that other uh, life of my primary school teacher, Paul Beireiter, it seemed to me uncannily similar to the time which Wittgenstein, in his misguided idealism, spent as a primary school teacher in this beastly village in Upper Austria, which is quite as what knows an extraordinary tale, you know, where he tried or attempted to live the life of a saint, but at the same time constantly lost his temper with these stupid peasant children and, you know, clipped them about the ears and so on. And, uh, you know, it was coincidences of this kind, so woven into the school teacher's story, there is a faint second Wittgenstein foil. And, of course, I mean, the, I mean Wittgenstein as a, as a I mean one can, you know, I think many of us find it difficult to deal with this philosophical thought because we're all out of our depth when we get into it, or most of us are. But his private life, or his person, of course, has something endlessly fascinating about it. It has so many things in it that one wants to know about that um, 
one just cannot somehow get get away from it. And I had the intention of doing a film script on Wittgenstein at one point and did a rough draft for it. So it's something that may yet happen. Take a last question. What courses do I teach? I teach mainly, well, uh, when I started teaching in Manchester, I taught mainly language classes, as a, a university lector is supposed to do, about t 10 hours a week. And now I teach mainly uh, 19th and 20th century German and European writing. I'm going to ask W.G. Sebald just to read for about two or three minutes a couple of pages from, from the book. Um, just by way of concluding myself, um, I would say, uh, to clarify this question of pathos, I, I agree with the questioner that um, I think the pathos is something that we uh, construct, almost free associate from the photographs. I don't think it's inherent in the text. And in fact, on rereading the book, this morning and, and yesterday, um, I was struck by constantly by both moments of tact and moments of, of in, in your words, uh, melodrama. I mean, the moments at which uh, a narrative must uh, excite. One of the moments of, of tact, it seems to me, is in the Paul Bayreiter story when we know nothing so far about his Jewishness or quarter Jewishness, and we are simply told that his sadness was that he stopped teaching in the mid-30s because of the new laws. That's the first uh, sense we are given, apprehension in that story, that we have gone into much deeper waters. Um, that would be an example of, of absolute tact and care, it seems to me, antipathetic. Um, an example of pathos, it seems to me, that I was very struck by is the moment in the first story, Dr. Selwyn, when they, uh, there is a, a slide show and Sebold notes that the people watching, that Selwyn and his friend could talk about all the photos, flora and fauna and so on, but whilst their images themselves were on screen, trembling slightly, there was almost total silence in the room. And that seems to me almost a moment of, 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 of 19th century, uh, romanticism or, or gothic excitement uh, there. So the book seems to me to have uh, both qualities in it and, uh, and is undeniably a great book. And I'm going to ask uh, W.G. Sibyl just to read uh, for a couple of minutes from it. This happens to be the, the last paragraph of the uh, passage that I also read yesterday, so I, sh I think I should be able to do that without too much difficulty. It was almost evening. Dr. Abramsky led me back through the arboretum to the drive. He was holding the white goose wing and from time to time pointed the way ahead with it. 
Towards the end, he said, as he walked, your great uncle suffered progressive paralysis of the joints and limbs, probably because of the shock therapy. After a while, he had the greatest difficulty with everyday tasks. He, he took almost the whole day to get dressed, simply to fasten his cufflinks and his bow tie took him hours. And he was hardly finished dressing, but it was time to undress again. What was more, he was having constant trouble with his eyesight and suffered from bad headaches. And so he often wore a green eye shade, like someone who works in a gambling saloon. When I went to see him in his room on the last day of his life, because he had failed to appear for treatment for the first time, he was standing at the window, wearing the eye shade, gazing out at the marshlands beyond the park. Oddly, he had put on armlets made of some satin-like material, such as he might have worn when he used to polish the silver. When I asked why he had not appeared at the appointed time, he replied, I remember his words exactly. It must have slipped my mind whilst I was waiting for the butterfly man. After he had made this enigmatic remark, Ambrose accompanied me without delay down to the treatment room where Farnstock was waiting and submitted to all the preparations without the least resistance as he always did. I see him lying before me, said Dr. Abramsky, the electrodes on his temples, the rubber bit between his teeth, buckled into the canvas wraps that were riveted to the treatment table like a man shrouded for burial at sea. The session proceeded without incident. Farnstock's prognosis was distinctly optimistic, but I could see from Ambrose's face that he was now destroyed, all but a vestige of him. And when, he come when he came round from the anesthetic, his eyes, which were now strangely glassy and fixed, clouded over, and a sigh that I can hear to this day rose from his breast. An orderly took him back to his room, and when I went there early the following morning, troubled by my conscience, I found him lying on his bed, in patent leather boots, wearing full uniform, so to speak. Dr. Abramsky walked the rest of the way beside me in silence, nor did he say a word in farewell, but described a gentle arc with a goose wing in the darkening air. <laughs>